even between couples, the goals could be quite different. So I might, this is a really bad example, by the way, I might say my financial goals are to buy myself a Ferrari. And my wife might say, that's stupid. Our financial goals are to set ourselves up for retirement. Not buy a Ferrari, by the way. But, you know. This was last night at dinner, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. This is Superfast Business with James Schramko. James Helping you build your business super fast. James Schramko here. Welcome back to superfastbusiness.com. This is episode 814. Today is a special episode. It's called Grill Will. That's hashtag Grill Will with my good friend, William Wang. Welcome back. Thanks, James. It's going to be a fun one today, I think. You're a regular contributor to this podcast, and that's because my audience love you. And you're very good at what you do. You're a high-level marketing agency. You work with funded startups. You work with big multinational corporations. And you work with some small operators who are at the earlier phases and need to do such things as a cold marketing campaign or they want to tune a funnel they've already got that maybe is not getting the results they want. You're super smart, super dynamic, well-connected, one of my favorite people on the planet. You're also a partner of mine. You've got a business called growth labs with a z dot com does that about summarize it yeah i think so i mean thank you so much for the kind words james that's a it's a pretty epic intro actually <laughs> make me blush <laughs> well feel free to use that you're also a martial artist a surfer a dad you have too much talent for one person perhaps but today we're going to find out if you know what you're talking about or not because at your suggestion <laughs> you said when we're talking about what to podcast about because we like to keep a regular show running in our get leads series and you said, why don't we ask your audience? And I said, because I like to um, basically delegate stuff. I said, why don't you help me out with an email that we'll send out to my audience and we'll ask them, what would they like to grill wheel with? So you also offered a prize, which is really interesting. So firstly, tell me what the prize is. Cool. So the prize is, well, two things really. One, I'm going to give everyone who sent the question in a free copy of my LinkedIn lead generation course. So it's a course that's selling for 97 at the moment. I'm going to give everyone who sent the question through a free copy of that. So keep an eye out on your inboxes for those. And we're going to pick one winner out of all the questions. And I'm going to do an hour strategy session with them, which is valued at $500. So they're going to get that free of charge and we'll pick a winner and we'll do that and I'll help them fix their marketing funnel or whatever they want to do with their marketing. Nice. And I'm going to throw in a super fast business hoodie to the winner. So I'm going to need to know the size and the address where you want it sent and a copy of Work Less Make More if they don't already have one or if they want a second one, <laughs> something that I can add value to. So we had quite a lot of responses. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to refer to my uh, inbox here, which sort of blew up a bit. Thank you, Will. <laughs> I'm going to just tell you the name of the person and their question, and you're going to answer it. And I will make a contribution if I feel it's relevant. If I've got something to add to this or I want to define the question a, a bit, uh, the answer with you, and we'll just see how far we get. I think we'll probably take the top 25 questions. So this will be a rapid fire, actionable episode. And uh, it was only possible because of our audience. So this is kind of semi-interactive in a way because everything that Will is about to answer has come from our listening audience. So you ready, Will? 
Yep, I'm ready. And just before we begin, James, I will say that your audience and the people who are on your email list are such intelligent people. Like the questions they're sending through are such good questions. So I'm really impressed by, first of all, the number of people who interacted and sent the question through, but just the quality of question as well was just absolutely amazing. So thank you, everyone listening and on James' list. Yeah, really impressive to see. And what we might do is if there's a question that's so profound or deep that it's an entire episode, we may revisit that on a future date as well. But I think... It'll be really interesting to just get some broad coverage of the answers here. Mm. I'll kick off with Gert. (laughs) He's another one of our partners, actually, seoleverage.com. He said he loves Grill Will, by the way. Great idea. (laughs) If you could only spend 30 minutes every day on LinkedIn, what would be the 80-20 to focus on to leverage LinkedIn to grow your business? That's a great question. So 30 minutes a day looking to grow and get leads from LinkedIn. I'd focus on two things. I'd spend 25 minutes of that time focusing on people that I want to connect with and have conversations with, not who I want to sell with, just people I find really interesting and I want to get to know them, want to get to understand their business and you know see if we can get along and just be friends, essentially. 25 minutes, but I'll really research the people I reach out to. So I won't send out 50 connection requests in that time. I'll send out a maximum of say five to 10. The last five minutes I'd spend perhaps shooting a one or two minute video, put a video up and write a short caption and use a couple of hashtags just to keep the content machine rolling. So that'll be what I focus on every single day. The content piece you might only want to do once a week. Maybe you can take out one of those sessions and do just a content session rather than connection session, whatever works for you. But 30 minutes is all about new connections, new friends, and just understanding the people you're connected to and having great conversations. That's the missing link, isn't it, Will, where most people are just getting on LinkedIn and just spraying strangers with their spam bot. Exactly. And, you know, it doesn't take much to come across differently. And honestly, why would you want to work with someone who you don't know? I'd rather build the connections and have a friend first, and then we can look at doing business together. I got uh, spam botted by someone saying, hey, you know, if you want to catch up, work out some synergies and schedule a time for us to talk about a LinkedIn outreach strategy, here's my calendar link. And I replied back saying, well, I think I've just understood what your LinkedIn outreach strategy looks like. And then when I looked back <laughs> in a week later, the account said LinkedIn user. So they'd been wiped from the planet, <laughs> which is <laughs> ironic. Okay, next question from Can. He actually put two questions, which is cheeky, but I have to admire the hustle. <laughs> what are some examples of the best conversion strategies you've seen or deployed yourself? Yep. Number one for me, pick up the phone. Honestly, there's nothing like talking to someone you're trying to bring on board as a customer. People can try and you know hack funnels all day, do all this kind of stuff. I'd rather just talk to a person, a real life person and figure out how I can help them or if I can even help them. That is the number one converting thing for me. And, you know, I was in a position where I first started where I was really scared of the phone, but I quickly realized how powerful a really good phone call or a Zoom call is. So number one conversion by far is just talking to people, talking to your customers. Love it. I'm an old telephone guy here. I agree with that. If you can't convert over the phone or face-to-face, you'll find it really hard with a stretched out automated campaign. So start there. Question number two, how do you structure your agency and who are your most important hires to ensure that you continue to deliver great work for your clients? Boy, this is a big one that James has helped me with so, so much over the past couple of years. So this obviously changes as your agency grows and as you take on potentially some different services and products. My most important person in the agency, actually, the second most important person, most important person, mate, I'm going to give you a big shout out, is someone looking from the outside of the agency who can see your mistakes and see the issues that you might be coming into. And it's an external coach. So by far, the most value I've ever gotten was working with yourself, James, and just being able to direct me in terms of who 
who we actually need in the structure of the agency itself. So that's kind of external. Internally, a general manager, for me, my GM has been instrumental in our growth path for the next two to three years and also beyond. So if you read the book Rocket Fuel, I'm a typical visionary in that I've got a million ideas a second and I just need someone to pick up after me and implement them or to tell me no. So for me, having an operator who did that role has been absolutely business and life-changing. You've just reminded me, and by the way, thanks for the big heads up. I was thinking in your agency, you're definitely a critical person as well as most agency owners are, but the secret is to make that not the case over time. If you can do that like I did with my SEO business, that's the ultimate and you make a saleable asset. Now, I happen to know someone who's interested in being an integrator. So if you're listening to this episode and you're a high visionary and you need someone to come in and just get stuff done, who's sort of technically competent, uh, robotic in delivery, and they're doing this on a fractional basis, which means they can work for multiple people on a contract for a monthly retainer, just get in touch with me and I'll hook you up. Okay. Next is Lawrence. He'd like to hear from both of us talking about measure marketing efforts. And this is context. He's been working with someone to track sales via website, social media, email, et cetera, using UTM links and Google Analytics, but it's getting quite complicated. And even after months of tracking, there's still challenges in tracking where the sales came from. So he'd love to hear us talk about the solutions to tracking and perhaps frame the answer for a low, medium or high budget. And um, curious if you ever break the 64-4 rule and sometimes post on platforms like YouTube that may not get many sales, but because it doesn't take that much time to do, you do it anyway. Okay, so two questions in there. And also, the first question is a really big question in terms of attribution and tracking. Massive. I've done whole episodes on this with uh, Scott DeGrosier. Mm. That, that's, that's the entire topic is, can you track it? What are you tracking? How do they marry up? In fact, the episode just recently before this one, uh, was with um, Rand Fishkin, and he thinks that Google and Facebook are very keen to try and throw their hat in the ring and take credit for sales that may not necessarily be them. They're just somewhere touched in the pathway. So because Lawrence asked for my input as well, I'll just say, look, I think it is complex. And so in my business, I use a tool. I use Wicked Reports to get a better picture of first and last attribution and the journey of the customer and how long they take and what they're worth each and which channels work well for me. But I'm probably just a rank amateur at this. Will, you're an agency. You have customers paying you big bucks for big results. You must have a tracking solution. Yeah, it's very different for each customer. My corporate career was in business intelligence and looking at data and how it works. Well, that makes sense now. now that you, you dropped that bit of gold. It's, a, it's like when I speak to Alana and I find out she was a data analyst. Do you guys make the best agencies? Yeah, that was my exact role, business intelligence and data analyst. So, look, it's one of those questions where companies pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to answer. So, it's not an easy question to just give you a one line and be like, this is what it is. It's so different depending on how you do your marketing, what your budget is, what your sales processes. I'll use an example of Atlassian, which is, you know, this massive company started out from Sydney. When they were growing, one of the questions they asked was, how much bank of buck do we get from my Google ads? And so they went for the same challenges in terms of measuring what's the return on investment. And so they ran this crazy experiment and they just said, for next month, let's turn off all our Google ads and see how much we're growing. And turn it off 
And for the very next day, the traffic just dropped off a cliff and the sales dropped off a cliff. And so they ran up that experiment for two days and they said, okay, this is obviously where our sales are coming from. This is not good at all. Turn it straight back on. So at a very high level, that's a mentality you can have. Can you separate everything that you're doing or build separate funnels with separate channels and all that kind of stuff to really measure what happens? Is it worth the effort? I don't know. It depends on how much you're spending, but there are ways to track and there's systems out there like Wicked Reports, as you were saying, James. We use Data Studios with Supermetrics on it to bring data in. There's so many different models you can use as well. There's first touch, last touch, scientific attribution, weighted attribution. There's just no real one clean answer. So it's uh, one of those questions where if you have consistent data, if you're tracking trends in your data, if your bank account and sales are coming through, even if you get 80% of the picture, hey, maybe that's good enough. Maybe it's not worth investing $500,000 into a BI tool to figure out the last 20%. Maybe that's you know good enough. Or if you're spending millions, maybe that 20% where you don't have the visibility can account for significant revenue and also spend. So one of those questions where there's no one answer and it really depends on the business itself. Love it. I just got off a team meeting with my own team and they said, listen, since we went back from one to two podcasts a week, we've got an extra 99 keywords rolling in for our SEO report. We've got more subscribers, velocity. We have more podcast downloads and our ranking improves. So at a very base level, we know that podcasts have a direct relationship to super fast business membership sales, which is why I've been doing it for 10 years. There are examples of companies who switched off their advertising and had no dip in sales. I think Airbnb might be in that bracket, Mm. but don't quote me on that. Got to go refer back to the other episode to see that. But I think you can't track everything. What we did was try putting our stuff in lots of places and then slowly prune back a few places that didn't seem to be working. So for example, in my case, I wasn't seeing much happening off Pinterest. So we just don't bother. And just by not doing something, we can put that energy into something else. And again, we think we've got a feel for what mostly works. And I can say without any doubt in our business, one of the metrics I'm most interested in is emails. That's a highly trackable medium. It's something you do really well, Will. And I think that might be like, should we be spattering stuff everywhere? And is it generating our email list or not? Because once you get the email, it starts to get you a lot more clarity on what's actually happening, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. I would you know, focus on the one channel that you're really, really good at and that you can control. And I don't even bother with everything else because it's energy that you can put back into the one channel. I love it. Okay, that was good. Tough question. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> Very advanced question. (laughs) It is. Obviously, you know, Lawrence is doing this at a high level. Ray asks, when you have too many options and you're getting yourself overwhelmed by too many thoughts or ideas, what is the best way to clear your mind of all the noise and focusing on winning ventures or ideas? Also, I'll be joining your program this month. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) This was really telling. In this email, Ray asks, thanks for the email. Where's the link for this? So that's a classic where someone wants to make it more complicated than just hitting reply because I think a lot of people don't believe that they're just going to reply and have an organic conversation. They're looking to be processed. Like banks and telcos and big companies have trained us, so we have to go and click on a link to fill out a survey and all this. And when we just say, hey, hit reply, we've reduced the friction. It's almost too easy and it seems impossible that it could be true. But it was. That's why we got flooded with emails. I love that we had a response because it shows there's a pulse out there. And thank you for every single person who replied. Thank you for shaping this episode. This episode is for you, by you. What's your answer for Ray? How do you free yourself from overwhelm? Too many thoughts. 
Man, that's such a good question because it's something I struggle with every single day. Like I've got entrepreneurial ADHD to the maximum. You you get a thousand ideas per minute, Will. This I'm going to say that about you. A lot of people I coach, you're right there in the top percentile of highly creative. You're an ideas man, as they would say in the movie The Castle. And I've always said this with you, the greatest value I can bring to Will Wang is to just <laughs> calm him down and get him focused on the right things because he could do a bazillion things. You are prolific. You're like the Tassie devil in that cartoon. Yeah. Oh, thanks, James. It's, um, you know, I think the answer is pretty obvious. For me, it's having you in my corner. So it's really good and important for me. You know, one of the most important things in my business and my empire, which I'm building, is just having someone as a sounding board to say, hey, is this a good idea? Do you think I should do this? So I've hired a general manager in my business to look at, do we have capacity to take on this new client on this new project? And even outside of the business. So, you know, I, I talk to James every single week and I say, hey, James, I'm looking at doing this. Do you think this is viable? And you will often come back and ask me questions which will make me think yes or no or ask other questions which will give me an answer. And you journal. I've encouraged you to journal, right? Mm. And have you observed this? When you journal and I'm keeping an eye on you and I ask you a subtle question like, okay, tell me more about that or whatever, <laughs> versus when you don't journal for, say, a couple of weeks, then when you pop back up, like so much has happened and we're like, whoa, how did we go from here to there? <laughs> like it's crazy how far you can get in just a couple of weeks. You did this one thing once <laughs> that was just so off the wall. I'm like, I can't even connect these two things. How did this happen? So I think the technique you're referring to here is get it out and make sure you surround yourself with either people or a system that's not just an echo chamber or a yes man, that you've got someone around you to bounce ideas or refine the questions. I think a lot of the challenges, specific part here is focusing on a winning venture or idea. That comes through refinement of asking the best possible questions and looking at an idea from different angles. So like the macro stuff is, do you even have capacity for new stuff right now? Of the things you are working on, which things are draining you, which things are already working well? And of the things that are working well, is there a simple move that you could take that would dramatically increase the results from that activity that mean all the rest of the things fade away into non-existence? And if you've got that assistance or the ability to do that for yourself, which is probably very rare, and I put myself in that bucket, I coach myself in that way, but developing that muscle so the way I developed that was I just used to purge everything out of my head onto paper or a whiteboard. Then I'd step back from it. I'd leave it. I'd come back later and then start looking for the gold. And then I'd take a picture of it and then I'd rub it away. And I'd be left with just the few things that matter and I'd ignore the rest. And I knew that it's on my camera. And I very rarely look back at my camera roll I don't think I actually have ever done it once saying, oh, I've run out of things to do. I better go look at all those other 98 activities that I, I've forgotten about them. <laughs> they didn't matter as it turns out. Yeah, definitely. And just one uh, last thing on that is um, yeah, getting the coaching from you. I think a lot of people have this mindset where they want coaching to teach them extra stuff or give them more input. Yeah. I think coaching is for me about focus and refinement and carving away stuff yes more than giving me extra stuff where's the statue of david inside the block of marble mm. i had this exact conversation this morning my first call this morning is a guy who's doing quite well you know he's doing a couple of hundred grand a year he's got enough money to get by he's doing some hobbies but it's not enough to retire off he's not feeling like he's maxed out 
And we worked out that he already has every asset he needs to have a seven-figure business. He just needs to rearrange it. And the metaphor I gave him was, you've got a scrambled Rubik's Cube and we're going to solve it. And it's going to look beautiful with the nice colors on each face. We just have to rearrange. We're going to take some of the things he's got, package them differently and market them with a different face. And it's going to go berserk, I can tell. So I'll I'll be looking forward to getting him on the podcast in the future and to talk about the transformation. But he had everything he needs Mm. right there sitting in front of him. So often you don't need to add anything at all. Next question from Adam. $500 budget, small social media following, no email list. What's the best way to launch a new digital product? These questions are pretty hard to answer because it doesn't take into context the audience, the product, the pricing. So for a general question, I'll give a very general answer, which could be completely wrong because I don't have the right context. Well, let me give you some context. Yeah. I'm clicking on the link in his email and let's call it a religious audience. Mm. And it seems like they want people to donate That seems to be the purpose of this website. So I don't know what product they might have. Maybe they've been listening to one of the super fast business case studies where one of our clients built a membership for his religious audience, for his ministry, you know, basically went online during COVID and created a recurring subscription membership. So let's use that as an example, because I think that's one everyone listening to this podcast can relate to. So I'll rephrase this question and apologies, Adam, if I haven't got it exactly right, but I want to give Will a chance of answering this that will bring value to all our listeners. $500 budget, small social media following, no email list, best way to launch a new digital course Mm -hmm. teaching something that I'm an expert on. Perfect. So I wouldn't spend a cent of that on advertising because with ads, it can take some time. It can take some, you know, learnings and you're going to have to test. And if 500 is all the budget you've got, maybe that's not the right platform. What I would use the 500 for is to invite people who already have an audience in my space to lunch. I'd get to know them, I'd tell them about the concept, explain why it helps them, explain why it helps their audience, and offer to do some kind of revenue share or some kind of partnership deal with them to promote you into their existing audience. So that 500, I'll put aside exclusively just to take people out, to meet people in my market who have my audience and build those relationships. I wouldn't spend a cent of that on advertising. You really walked the walk too. You took me to a nice restaurant down here at a local beach. Your wife and my wife, it was a lovely meal. And it's so old school and it would be easily ignored by an online marketer because we fall for this trap of being online and we have to do everything digitally. I was thinking along the same lines. For $500, you could send some nice lumpy mail. You could probably send five $100 value courier packages to someone, you know, of something relevant to them. I've often said this, but if someone sends me a bar of surfboard wax or a leg rope or a surfboard key, they're going to get my attention. And those things, wax costs $6 right? Mm. It's not expensive to show someone you know them and send them something relevant to them. It's at the very least going to let you read their letter. Like even if they reply to say thank you, then you can start your pitch. Great technique, Will. Unexpected and uh, clever. Okay, continuing on. (laughs) Thank you. Eric asks, he would like to know if the word free is negative to use in marketing 
example, he wants to market his high-end coaching program and he wants to target customers with an outrageous offer. He's heard my episode that I did with Trevor Toecracker Crook in the form of me working with a group of his particular type of clients for a certain period of time for free. He's convinced he can solve their problem, but it's not him who needs convincing. He needs to convince them. So is it ever wrong to offer yourself for free of proof that you can deliver in a long-term partnership? I would answer this in a more different way because I don't think the root of the question or the issue is this idea of giving something away for free. Personally, I, I think it can be used really well. It can be used really badly. I don't think that's the main issue. I think the main issue is that he doesn't see the value enough to ask people to pay for it. If you're so confident in your services, why shouldn't people pay for your years of experience and learning and everything like that? So unless you're just starting out or proving a concept or, you know, you're at the very beginning, that's okay. If it's a service or a product that's going to take a lot of time and effort and you know you can do a good job, you should really be charging for it. I agree. Two points. Free can often attract people with no commercial intent. So a bad context of free is enter your email address to go on a draw to win a free iPad, Mm. right? That's not going to get you a targeted customer. That gets you the email address of someone who would really like an iPad, which is pretty much the entire population. (laughs) It's not very specific to whatever it is you're selling. That's why I like incentives Mm. that are in line with the thing you offer. Like, you know, enter your email address to get a free LinkedIn course. Now you're attracting people who think their life would be better off with a LinkedIn course, which is not the whole population. Mm. Then the second thing is he's thinking about doing work for free. And I agree with you. If you're brand new, starting out, you've got nothing to lose, you've got no reputation, you're not even sure if you can do the job well or not, then by all means, do whatever you can. I used to do direct response flyers for my local dry cleaner for free because I wanted to practice split testing that I actually wrote the ads, I printed them out, I cut them up, and then I paid someone to deliver them to 3,000 households in the local area. And then I'd go into the dry cleaner and ask him which one people brought in. Mm. And I learned about direct response copy on my own dime. I paid for my own education. But I was a brand new, I was selling cars as a job during the day. So th- <laughs> this is how I got access to new information and experience. I think if you want an outrageous offer, charge for it, but give them a better than money back guarantee or something like that. Mm. Because if you are good at delivering what you can, then you don't have that much risk that people are going to claim on you. And uh, the worst case, they're in a no risk position for trying your services. And the qualifier is they have to pay to get in. So they'll pay, but you'll give them the money back if they don't think you got them a result that was amazing, as per the episode with Trevor. So I'd say be careful with that, the use of free, how you're using it. And uh, I think it was a really interesting question because it's so easy to take a concept and then to mutate it into something that's not beneficial if you're not careful. Mm. Good chance you'd be doing a lot of work for not much reward. (laughs) Okay, here's uh, one from David. Is it a good strategy to acquire leads by purchasing Facebook or LinkedIn groups with members in it that are compatible with your target market? Hmm. Again, I'll look at how much they're asking for because I always feel like, well, it's all well and good to take over someone's group, but they built the group with their brand and their message. So if the group members don't resonate with your new message or your new style of communication, that group is wasted. For the same amount of money, the question I would ask is, can I build a group that's the same or better with my own branding and messaging for the same amount that I'll pay this person for their group? And often the answer is actually, yes, I can do a much better job if I invested this into building my own group rather than acquiring someone else's. Love it. 
By the way, if you're enjoying this episode, then be sure to subscribe to Superfast Business because we have lots of different topics on this show. This is one example of what Will and I are talking about. This is a brand new segment, Grill Will. If you like it, can you let us know so that we can do more of it? And if you hate it, can you let us know so we stop doing it immediately? <laughs> right. Uh, but I'm enjoying this. This is fun for me. So next one from Anne. When you're developing an authority presence for both the company and yourself as a personal brand, do you differentiate them or keep them very similar? When you then want to leverage the company authority branding for the launch of several apps with different names as a common factor, what should you make sure you do from a marketing perspective to not dilute your brands? Or should they all become their own brand? So this is a branding positioning question, and I'm sure you can interpret that into a nice little answer. Yep. So obviously the caveat that we're a direct response marketing agency, we're worked at direct results. Branding isn't my strong suit, but I'll give this a crack. So I'm always a big believer in building the personal brand and the personal brand can encompass many different businesses, but people always relate better to another person versus another brand, especially at the very beginning. Personal brand is great. Um, trying to build both at the same time is hard work. But building one brand already, it's a lot of work. Trying to build two at the same time with different messages and things like that, it just gets a little bit hard. When you're at the stage where you're bigger and you do have different products and different services, then you can look at it and say, well, which ones align to my core brand and my personal brand and which ones don't? And the ones that don't align to your personal brand, maybe you do spin that off as its own little brand, create its own little audience. But at that point, you should have a lot more resources that you can dedicate to that. So I would start with personal brand first and worry about the other piece a little bit later on. But obviously, you know, this is from a direct marketer's point of view. It is a very branding orientated question. So hey, talk to a branding expert. <laughs> from my perspective, I'm now saying it's really important to brand yourself personally mm. because it's easy to brand yourself. There's only one you. It's hard for people to compete with you. You've got a big moat to protect your brand if it's just you. And then you can lend that credibility to whatever brand you work on, like Elon Musk does with Tesla or with Solar mm. or with SpaceX. You can use that personal brand to throw a halo onto your product and then the product can take on its own life. Steve Jobs did with Apple, with Pixar, and they can be certainly very strong brands in their own right. So yeah, I think building a personal brand is a good idea and then lend your other brand some power to it. Question from David, if you're in the business coaching space and you have zero followers on social media, which platforms would you recommend working on to gain a following in order of preference and why? If you could only pick one, <laughs> which one would it be and why? And what's the biggest mistake you see people make on social media when trying to build a following for business purposes? I think the biggest mistake someone can make is to think about social media and the platform first before looking at the business. So if you're a new coach and you don't have a social media following, my question is, well, does it matter? Can you go out there and grow your business first before you even think about all this social stuff? So just to take some context of what we do personally, I'm pretty slack with my own organic social media content. We don't do a lot of content for our businesses. And I found that I haven't needed to. It's not the way I want to play the game. I prefer to sit behind the scenes, get my clients results and use them to highlight what we can actually do. So I'm not on Facebook all the time posting. You won't see a single picture of me and a flashy car on Instagram unless it's like a fun thing. That's just not my game. I don't play the social media organic stuff too well. What I do really pay attention to is what are my revenue numbers looking like? Are my customers happy? Are they sticking around with me for a long time? And are they getting results? 
And if they are, everything else is secondary. So if you really need to go and build a social media following, first of all, ask yourself why. Secondly, build the one that feels the most like you. So if you're great on video, obviously YouTube's good. If you like writing stuff and sharing, maybe Facebook, Instagram, if your audience is on there, they're not always on there. If you're, for example, going after corporate clients, they're not checking Instagram all the time. And LinkedIn is great for a professional audience, but at the same time, you can sink a lot of time and effort into it and not get too much back. So if you're just starting out, I would say don't even worry about that. Focus on the revenue, focus on business growth, focus on who is my next connection or conversation I'm having. And then you think about social media. Once you've got a team and you've got more time on your hands. I love that. I've said the same thing to David, actually. I've said, just get a customer, just get a customer Mm. and get a result. Everything after that is optional. That's the only thing that matters right now. Don't worry about your book, your podcast, your whatever. Like, just get a customer and get them a result. So, good. Good to have backup on that. Thank you. Another one from David. He's put in about five questions. <laughs> <laughs> what is the fastest growing sector in the online business space? And if you were to buy an established business, what type would it be and why? You know what? I don't know what the fastest growing sector is because I honestly don't care because I'm not good in that sector. If I was to buy businesses, and this is something that we've actually discussed, James, you know, the idea of me branching to other businesses, I look at one that I know I can grow really well, that lends itself to my background and experiences, and or I'll look at one that I'm passionate about or that I've got a really strong interest in. So you've got the business around surfing. If I'm looking at businesses, it'll be around health or fitness or even mindset, entrepreneurship, things like that. The sectors and stuff like that, look, you know, if I'm not happy working every single day, I don't care if it's the fastest growing sector or not, I'm not going to do good job of it. So I don't worry too much about that kind of stuff. I worry more about where can I have the most impact and what industry can I work in for the next five or 10 years and not feel bored and wake up excited to work every single day. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, maybe things like the star principle are driving that question, which is being invested in the top performers within the fastest growing industry. Perry Marshall talked about that. I know the booming industries are ones that are pandemic friendly, you know, like there are home improvements. Everyone wants to fix up their house right now. (laughs) Solar energy, it's like clearly energy is going to shift in the future. There are financing and mortgages type things. When people have financial pressure, they're going to want to refinance things. So Mm. there are fast things. Again, if you want to take an investor role, then you have to do your research, find people who are really good at buying businesses and growing businesses, people who are in M&A, business brokers often publish newsletters you got to get busy tracking those things but i don't think will or i are the experts on that i'd rather have matt rad on the show to answer that question Mm. so it's good about knowing our our limits of what we do or not next one from carl hopes we are well uh yes thank you carl i am (laughs) will is too right yep 100 percent. yep wants to ask you about a modern day sales process what are the different ways or behaviors in which people are now buying stuff like selling via email selling over the phone, sales calls. Yeah, I find that the old school way, so selling over the phone, talking to someone over Zoom, having the consultative sales process, like the spin sales process, where it's all about figuring out what problems they've got, coming up with solutions and being very consultative. That for me would never go out of style. Yes, there's new technology coming up. I know that a lot of people are doing things like sell by chat. They're doing things like text messages. I think that stuff is all... It might work now, but I don't know if it's going to work long-term. I don't know if something's going to come and replace it. I like working off long-term principles that if we get good at the principle, it doesn't matter what system or what platform it is, we can just move across to those. So my thinking is I always want to have an in-depth understanding of the person trying to buy my product. 
And the best way to do that is to have a conversation with the person. So if I can, my preference is always to jump on a Zoom call. If it's not a Zoom call, it's a voice call. If it's not a voice call, I don't mind going through via email and actually typing detailed responses backwards and forwards between myself and the potential customer, which might be coming on board. I know all the other flashy stuff works well at times. I've seen it applied well and still not work though. So I'm always at the principle, just talk to someone. Love it. Fundamentals. I agree. For me, the definition of selling hasn't changed at all. It's simply just helping someone improve their situation. I can feel good about that. In order to do that, it's good to get strong pre-marketing so that your marketing is easier. And then if you do that, then your selling is simple. And even agencies like Will's who do cold outreach, he's still doing the effort in research and he does the relationship building and the initial back and forth to warm up the cold prospect before they get to the selling part. Right? You don't just send out a cold pitch as your first email, do you, Will? Definitely not. Right. So it's still the process. It's just fast-tracked and through a certain channel. So whatever tool you use, whatever channel you use, just think of it as the more marketing you do, the less selling you need to do. And a sale is simply the process of change from the current situation to a better alternative situation. And however you can create an environment that helps someone move through that transition, that's what selling is. It hasn't changed forever. We're still going to buy in the future. And any type of channel that reduces the slippage is good, which is why a telephone or Zoom is high value compared to just putting up a opt-in page and then jamming people to it <laughs> with your spam bot. Okay. Question from Bill, speaking of uh, Bill, in an age of paid ads, how essential are SEO and organic traffic? Can I build a profitable business using paid traffic only? Is this wise? If not, what's the simplest way to get started generating organic traffic? That's a really good question. When I first started my career in marketing, I was of the opinion that SEO and stuff like that just doesn't matter. It takes too long, a lot of unknowns. I've come to become a more of a nuanced marketer in understanding that there are places where SEO definitely makes sense. And I've seen really good results come from the right SEO operators. So for example, Gert, for instance, I know that he does a really good job for clients and they see actual results. So yes, SEO definitely has a place. One of the things that I always advocate though is looking at your situation and your runway to results. So the reason why we chose to go down the path of advertising and copy is because I can launch a campaign really quickly and understand tomorrow if I've got sales coming in or not. So if you're after sales as quickly as possible, SEO to me isn't the right play for you. You should be looking at spending money to get your message in front of people and get them responding in some way. That being said, SEO is a long-term game and over the long term, SEO can be very profitable for businesses. So it's about that balance. It's about, you know, can you have a strategy that runs in the background where you don't see results for six to 12 months, but you know that long-term the results will be there. But in the meantime, can you upload or, you know, front load some of the results by doing paid advertising? I've seen businesses growing to 30 to $50 million a year off the back of only paid advertising, but those businesses are now looking at, well, what is our SEO play? So it depends on the business. It depends on how competitive your industry is and how good you are in advertising and converting those leads from advertising. Yeah, I think the answer is a bit of a combo. Mm. I started with SEO, then I went all in on paid traffic, and then I did more SEO, and now I'm doing a bit of both. And that's the right combo. It gives you good protection and long-term sustainability, super high profitability, big fan of SEO. Big fan of paid traffic done right. Like the basics, like mm. bidding on your own name on Google, <laughs> doing remarketing to people who've already visited your site. Those things are very easy to put in place and give you leverage on top of your existing activities. So they're worth doing. 
Great question here from Alicia, who's new. By the way, she's loving our podcasts, enjoying the variety and different style of topics and presenters, which is great feedback. Thank you. I, I never actually asked for feedback. <laughs> if you could go and put that on Apple, you'd make my day, Alicia. Very new to the entrepreneurial world, so there's some context for you. Just soaking it up at the moment and hoping to slipstream others. Very good strategy. Mm, yep. So here's the question. She's a wealth coach and she educates and empowers couples to transform their personal finances. So now I know to live the best life. When marketing to her target audience, she's found it quite difficult to get both individuals in the couple to say yes on the initial consult. Usually one of them's keen and the other one not. And so she doesn't get to do the consult with them and ultimately turn them into clients. Is there a technique that she can use to overcome this? I know the answer to this, but I wonder if you do, Will. So read that back to me. Is the issue that she can't get them on both on the call or that she can get one of them on the call, but they're not signing up because the partner's getting involved? She can't get them both to say yes to an initial consult. So she's basically finding one of them picks up her marketing and is unable to get buy-in from the other. So the question really is, how do I market to two decision makers? And maybe the sub question is, or the assumption is that she's probably initially only marketing to one mm -hmm. is what I'm reading between the lines there. Yeah. I would actually look at my marketing as in, I've got my first yes. What are the differences in thinking to getting the partner on the call? So I'll ask the initial partner about what they've discussed as a couple and what the goals as a couple are. Because even between couples, the goals could be quite different. So I might, this is a really bad example, by the way. I might say my financial goals are to buy myself a Ferrari. And my wife might say, that's stupid. Our financial goals are to set ourselves up for retirement. Not buying a Ferrari, by the way, but you know. This was last night at dinner, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's cute. But then depending on who you're speaking to, you'll never get the other person on the phone. So you've got to get the first person to buy in and share with you what the joint goals are or what the goals for both of them are and speak to that to get the other person engaged because you might be talking about the wrong thing to the wrong person. You've got to understand from a couple's perspective, what are their couple goals and use that to say, look, here's what I wanted to do. It's not just about you. It's about how we can help both of you at the same time. But here's some messaging to get them to understand exactly what we're trying to do. Love it. A couple of things come to my mind. Firstly, an example is in the home improvement industry. If you wanted to make an appointment for a roller door guy to come around to your house or girl and give you a measure up and quote, they will not come unless both people are present. That's the first rule. So make a piece of content and make a rule around You'll only do the consult if they're both there. Make a piece of content that speaks to that. Just say the number one reason couples fail with their personal finances is they breach rule number one. And rule number one is they need to be aligned on the same page. And that's why when we do our appointment, you must both be there. Mm. So that do your marketing directed at selling the idea that both people need to be present for this to work. So that's one concept. Another one is uh, Dean Jackson's More Cheese, Less Whiskers. Create a message that is ideal for one partner to pass on to the other, rather than them being tentative or scared of pushback if they bring it to the other partner. Make it so compelling that they actually upvote it for you, to use a modern term. Mm. This is akin to a receptionist screening things for a business operator. Like if you want to get past the receptionist, you send a courier you know, for the personal attention of with a big lumpy package, that is definitely going to be passed on to the desk of the operator. It's not going to be put in the trash bin with all the other like typed out direct response selling materials, like the real estate flyers you get in your letterbox. Like mm -hmm. they don't even make it inside my house. They get put in the bin on the way through the front mm -hmm. door. 
So make the thing so attractive that it needs to be passed on. The third thing would be uh, some kind of a Trojan horse, which is more or less the same technique, that you need to put the message for the end user inside the first message for the first user. And I encountered this a lot when I was at Mercedes-Benz. I was dealing with first-round decision-makers, and I had to get it through to the board of directors. So we would often get the objection, it needs to go to the board of directors, or it needs to be put to the annual budget or whatever. So contain the message within that so that it gets passed on. So you might need like a rocket ship to get to the moon. It might need the boosters to get away from the Earth, and then it needs the little shuttle part that goes onto the moon. You need two pieces to make this work. So see if you can put both pieces in the initial messaging. So there's a couple of ideas for Alicia. Hopefully some of that's useful, and we'll move on. Next up is Jason. Some people can be tired of being marketed to. What methods are used to get more positive energetic responses, not including case studies and stories? I would say if you're marketing to people who are sick of being marketed to, you've got the wrong message, actually. And look, that's a function of marketing. When I create campaigns for my clients, I'm not trying to appeal to everyone and trying to persuade people to come here and, you know, to change their minds about that product or a service. A lot of what we try to do is frame it in a way that we're answering objections or challenges or frustrations people are already thinking about. So if your message is on point, people aren't going to be tired of that, or the right people, I should say, aren't going to be tired of the message because you're speaking about things going on in their lives and what they're thinking about. You only get people being tired of your message if it's the wrong people getting the wrong message. So I wouldn't worry about that. I would look at who are my audience who will never get tired of what we have to say and how do I make the message so compelling that they self-select and qualify into what we're doing. Nice. Awesome. I'm not really going to add to that. Like, I don't like the sale, the how do we sell ice to Eskimos sort of philosophy of selling because it's like, why would you want to? <laughs> uh, is the, the answer, like, it just means you're a knob. Okay. From Adrian, my favorite Porsche dealer in the world and part of the Maldives uh, alumni. His difficulty is coordination of effort. So is it viable for a business such as his? He's a Porsche dealer. He does these classic Porsches, restorations, uh, pre-owned. Is it possible to have a remote team looking after many aspects of their marketing tasks? Do they need a manager and then a team? How do we achieve that? So traditionally, he's been dealing with most of it as the business has grown and he's now getting spread thinner and he doesn't want that to continue is it possible a local marketing GP is not the answer? You know, content and ideas are not the problem. It's just that he needs help. And can it be done externally? Can I go first on this one, Will? Yeah, please. <laughs> when I quit my job, my escape technique was I said to another motor dealer, I'm doing marketing for motor dealers full time now. Would you like to come on board? And they said, yes, when can you start? And that was one of my two first retainer clients. They did $5,500 per month. By the way, they didn't even ask me what I'm doing or for how much just to melt through any of the objections people get. And I looked after them for about seven years until I gave that client to another one of my clients because it was no longer you know, even close to the core of what we do. The same, I also handed over an injury lawyer client. So Yes, you can get someone outside of your business to do the marketing is my actual experience, but I'm interested in what you think, Will. Absolutely. I mean, that's the core of my business, right? We do a lot of the marketing for our clients. Yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> it's what we do. So in a short answer, yes, but find the right operators. So one of the challenges with the marketing industry is that there's such a low barrier to entry. Anyone can do a crappy $37 course and call themselves an online marketer or a digital marketer. 
picking the right company or you know consultant or agency is so important. So you need to make sure that they can prove what they've done in the past. They've got a track record. They've got clients. They understand marketing. Make sure they understand or take the time to understand your business, what makes you unique. If you have a good agency though, like I've helped some of our clients double and triple and just go to new heights with their marketing and we function as their marketing team. So it's definitely possible. Just make sure you find the right people to do it for you. I want to personally attest too, I've sent Will many leads, you know, people I've encountered who need his help when they're a good fit for him. It's either 12 or 14 in a row now that you've knocked it out of the park. It's very impressive to me. So I'm constantly impressed. I'll say that's the right word. I'm not amazed anymore (laughs) because, frankly, I've seen so much evidence, I expect it. But I was amazed in the beginning. One that stands out in my mind was you took a client that's doing over $10 million a year and you doubled their funnel, (laughs) which I think (laughs) that is impressive, all in caps. Next up is... Toast Tim. He wants to grill Will and he wants to Julian James about marketing. So is having a bit of fun with this. He ran low ticket offers that had upsells to increase the order value and he's run high ticket as well. They have great margins built in. He personally leans more as a preference to offer low ticket programs, but the modest amount of sales needed for high ticket ones for similar efforts make them a no brainer. He wondered, you know, what we both feel about this, either what you prefer to do personally or what you feel works better for you and why. Mm. I always like high ticket. I like high ticket because it means you can put more effort into serving your customers and get them better results. And when it comes to low ticket, I mean, industry averages two or 3% of people even complete the course and even less than that get the results. So when I do anything, I want to do it properly. I want to make sure my customers get the results. The way to do that for me is to be more involved and to have more hand-holding, accountability and support. And high ticket's the only way I can make it viable for my business or the ones of my clients. So I'm a big fan of high ticket. Low ticket, I think, can work as an entry point to your funnel or to your business, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary to have. Not at all. I'd go straight for the high ticket. I think the answer's contained in the question. He said he he only has to get a few (laughs) clients and he makes more money and it's a no-brainer. Yes, I only added low ticket in 2020 for the first time in about 10 years to my funnel because it's just not needed. With super fast business, I really only deal with people who are making $10,000 online already. That's the filter. And if they're not, they're not the ideal fit for me. And then in the higher echelons, like Silver Circle and the partnership level, I get the best customers, I make the most money, I have the most fun, they're the most interesting. So yeah, I would definitely focus on the high ticket first if you could only have one and then backfill it with what leads to that if you think the Ascension model is all that and a hat. And I put a whole chapter in Work Less, Make More about how I don't think the Ascension model is all it's cracked up to be because it's just not how the world works. Mm. And if you want proof of that, pay attention next time you go to a bicycle shop to buy a bike. Do you get one with training wheels? Or do you just get the newest mountain bike that's out because you already know how to ride it and you don't want the one with training wheels because you've already been there, done that, not interesting to you. So stop pushing people into a lower offering than what they actually need and start serving people at the highest level you want. And the best thing is there's virtually no competition at the high level, Mm. hardly anyone serving the high level market. And maybe it's because I came from Mercedes-Benz and AMG. 
I just have an affinity with that level of the market. I love it. And they're the best customers. So great question. I just spent $5,000 experimenting with this and running a low ticket offer into my funnels. And I hated some of the leads, even customers that came from bought our low ticket product. I proactively refunded a lot of them because they just weren't the right fit and they never would have turned into a client for my agency or for my consulting. So for me, I'm high ticket all the way. And you're right. People who buy low ticket aren't the same people who buy high ticket. So why try and market them in the same way? I had the worst feedback from this cohort of people who were recommended by a good friend of mine, but he's trained his audience for really high detail. They expect everything for nothing. And then when he sent them an offer to my product, which was $17, (laughs) there was like three or four people whinging about it. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, it's just so poles apart. And so I I just refunded them. I made the product $9 and we added extra stuff. So I took the feedback on the chin. But it did teach me a lesson, you know, and like, Mm. it's just, I don't want to be the Mazda, Toyota, Hyundai, Kia market. Mm. I just want to be Mercedes-Benz. That being said, I do love the customers I've got in super fast results in my $10 per month support assist program. They're really good people. But a lot of them actually do graduate through to super fast business, which is probably if I just waited longer, they'll start there. So it's an interesting experiment. But for the most part, I really wanted to validate 10X Pro and set it up and get it working. And it's got this great income coming through that's additional, but it was the last step in my funnel, not the first step. Another question from Jason, what's the best messaging to pivot from being a service provider to running a membership site? And how does one explain that they have the right teaching skills to be worth spending money on? That's a good question. I think the best way to explain it is just, well, I'll do two things. If you are that good and if you are in demand, I would raise my fees. I would say, look, to serve my customers better, I'm putting more into what we do as a service. Therefore, for new customers coming on board, I've got to raise my fees. That means that I can serve less of the market, but I still want to have an impact. So to do that, I've created a membership program for people who aren't ready for my high ticket service. In that way, I can still give you the help and assistance that will get you to the point where you can use our services. So that'll be the message which I use. Love it. I'd say just do it. Start as you wish to continue. Put up your offer page, get people going to it and get them a result. Put the results on the page. Have lashings of proof and then the market can see that and make up their own decision. Question from Make. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. He'll be releasing a new vegan family cookbook with recipes, not just for the youngest children, but also for hungry kids in their puberty, difficult uncles and carnivorous dads. Question is, What marketing technique is not to be missed when it comes to launching a book? Especially interested in the lowest hanging fruit since we're really short on time to set something up big. Lowest hanging fruit in that market, my thinking is it's hard to change someone's mind once it's made up. A carnivorous dad would never buy a vegan cookbook or very unlikely to. I would go to the people who would actually buy it, which would be the mums or you know the people who are actually going to use it and cook the recipes for the family. I would look at who has a potential to do a partnership with. I would look at vegan Facebook groups. I will look at vegan influencers and strike up some kind of partnership or deal with them where they promote your cookbook. They can get a cut of it. You can pay them directly, whatever it is. That's the method I'll use to launch it. So launch it to an audience who are already receptive. You know, so preach the choir, essentially. Love it. Find out who's got your audience. Make the offer extremely appealing to them. Love it. Exactly. For me, like launching a book in my world, the easiest way to do that is get on podcasts. That's the 80-20. Mm-hmm. Tim Ferriss says it. John Lee Dumas just did it. John Murillo did it. When my next books come out, I'll ask my podcasting community to have me on their show. It works. You do need to organize that a little bit in advance and you need to build relationships, but that's the 80-20. People listen to content. 
if you had no time and no audience, you might want to join a couple of those you know, vegan clubhouse chats that are going on with a thousand people and see if you can get up on the speaking stage for that because you've got to access someone else's existing audience. Question from Stephen. By the way, this grill, Will, I don't know if you knew what you're in for, Will, but I'm just, I'm not letting you <laughs> off the hook. This is like, we're going well done here. Awesome. No, keep him coming. <laughs> I've heard some marketers, this is for a new offer and a set of ads. Stephen says, I've heard some marketers test upwards of a thousand different variations on a campaign before finding the best version that gets results. If you have an offer that converts and you have the target audience dialed in, how many variations do you typically go through on ads? Do you keep tweaking the copy and all the graphics or the video? He's got here another question that goes back a step. You have an offer that you know converts. Is your time mostly on finding the right audience or testing different copy and content in the ads? Yep. So it all depends on the budget you've got. The bigger the budget, the more aggressively you can test. We've had clients who have the significant budgets for advertising. We've tested thousands of variations across you know, audiences, across different areas on the platform where it serves, different messages, designs. It depends on the budget. The purpose of testing is to have one thing up against another and have a significant result in that both have received enough traffic for you to have a confident core into what's worked better. The way that we test or the things that are most important for me is I test audiences first and foremost. That's probably the most important part. After the audiences, for me, it's all about the headlines and the copy. Then it's the graphics or the video. And then it's, you know, the other stuff that may or may not be as important in terms of an ad itself. So this is only in context of an ad, a separate testing for funnels and pages and things like that. If we test to the point where we've got good numbers, and then what we do is we keep running tests the whole time. We never stop testing because you just don't know what variation would spin up. That just works really well. So what we do, though, is we reserve 80 to 90% of our ad budget on stuff that we know is working and producing a really, really good profit. We then take a smaller component of ad budget and push that towards new split tests. So, you know, it's a never-ending process. You're never going to hit a point where it's like, this is the ultimate ad. We're going to run this forever. It just doesn't happen. Um, what we all said, except <laughs> I also just want to emphasize that with what people don't realize when you're testing things, you can dial the mix of tests. It doesn't have to be 50-50. Mm. And Will said it. You could have 90% solid and 10%. So I just want to hone in on that. Allocate a portion of your energy or attention into R&D, research and development. That was the secret source for us with our SEO business. We're always in front of the changes of our competitors. I still innovate now. We test new things all the time. Always be testing is the mandate. The second thing I want to add is this. Once you've got that going, you're running your testing, look outside of there. What is the big geometric growth opportunity? How mm. could you get in front of a 10 times bigger audience? What other channel could you add to the mix? Which of your other creatives could be coming at it from a completely different angle that might knock it out of the park? You just never know if there's a huge innovation available to you aside from the thing you're intensely focused on. So that's where people like me help you see what you're not seeing or prompt that you know whole extra, wow, didn't realize that exists type thing. Question from Christina. She's from South Africa, learned from some of the best copywriters in America but it's a bit too much, you know, like Australians say that as well. The question is, how do I know which parts to tone down for the local market? Loves marketing, but wants to do it the way Australians do it and apply it to the market. That's a good question. And, you know, it's something that I've personally had to come through as well, because I learned off all the copywriting greats. Copy is one of the things that in my agency, I still do. It's the hardest part for me to let go because it's the part that I enjoy and what brings such good results. For me, this isn't going to be an easy answer, but you need to test a lot in your market. 
I would write a bunch of different copy. I would test to see you know, what copy works well, test the tonality of how you approach it. First and foremost, write it in a way that makes you comfortable. So you've got to love the product. You've got to be a consumer of the product yourself and then use yourself as an example and say, would I buy this if I wrote it this way? And then use the data to back yourself up to say, well, if I wrote it this other way, what do my numbers look like? Is it better or is it worse? And you'll start to get a feel for the market that you're going into. If you're marketing one product or one business, you're going to find that out pretty quickly. If you're, for example, marketing across different businesses, it takes a little bit more time. It took me probably about five or six years of solid copywriting to really get the nuance between different markets. And I'm still learning to this day. I'll never stop learning about copy just because there's so much nuance to it. So you got to start somewhere, pick a place to start, sell it to yourself and use the numbers to kind of guide you. That's it. Dial it up, dial it down, test quite different variations and you'll find your answer. Question from Travis, what referral tactics working for you right now and explain the process to implement it? So one of the best ones for me, well, obviously the first and foremost is just to do a good job, right? Do a good job. Being on this show, <laughs> yeah, well, that's got to be good. Yeah. Having an endorser who people trust saying that you do good work is pretty hard to beat. <laughs> there is no greater source of referrals into my business than James. Like When you refer people in directly, they're pretty much like, okay, cool. What's the next step? How do we get going? That's the best referral. All my partners would say that. I'll be the single number one best source of traffic. So if you can align yourself in some kind of strategic partnership or arrangement where you are the perfect fit for their customers, that is a great strategy. And I, I love what you said, Will. I would say the exact same thing. Just get people results. Mm. If you get people results, you can't help but get referrals. That's a part where I think some people fail. They're not doing good stuff. Do good stuff. Mm. There's other smaller things that, you know, sometimes moves the needle, sometimes it doesn't. In all the monthly reports we send to clients, we ask them how they feel about our services. If it's a nine or a 10, we ask them, hey, do you know anyone else like you? Because you're awesome. We can work with. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we don't. Honestly, it's not as impactful as being on the show, having someone who you know endorses our business and walks someone into us. So that's probably the number one thing. And then obviously having to do a good job of it, because if you have a relationship, but you do a really crappy job for the people who get referred in, that relationship isn't going to be around for a long time. There'll be zero referrals. I, mm. I would stop sending referrals immediately if a solution doesn't get a result. And that's why it's critical when you make referrals, only ever refer if you believe the product or service is good, otherwise it reflects poorly on everyone involved. You know, you don't want to be a part of that. And you can only have longevity if you have integrity. Mm. Like even, you know, the big ballers with fantastic results who turn out to be scammers, eventually <laughs> they get their day. They get smashed eventually. No matter how much you think they're cheating and getting away with it, they don't. Mm. So got a grab bag of questions here from Darren. He suggested I pick the best one for the audience. So I'm having a quick look through here, but I want to treat this as a rapid fire. I just want a one-liner from you or a really yep. quick answer on, on this because I want them all. <laughs> what method or approach to marketing is no longer effective that was effective before COVID or the inverse? What's working now that wouldn't have worked before? No longer effective in-person event. Same answer. In-person events suck. Virtual events are now flourishing. Yep. What are good marketing strategies for people that don't want to do podcasts or YouTube or videos or personal brand? He wants to grow his business behind the scenes, doesn't want to be in front of the camera. His face would scare business off. I'm just scrolling down and he's got his face in the email. <laughs> and Darren, you're a handsome fella. Don't be shy. <laughs> I think you look very honest and uh, happy. 
you know, and I can't say that about everyone. So it's like I often say my voice doesn't sound that great and people say, no, you sound wonderful, you know, like, <laughs> so anyway. We're all our own harsh acidics. Good marketing strategies, rapid answer. You basically don't want to be the front. Yep. So either get a partner or employee that you can put to the front or use client testimonials in case that used to put to the front. Otherwise, suck it up and just do it. I was an introvert, got over it, got better at speaking going on camera, all that kind of stuff. It's worked really well. One or the other, use someone else or get better. Great advice. I've converted a few introverts like Greg Merrilies to go from back to front. And I've fostered a lot of people under my stage at Superfast Business Live who wouldn't consider themselves the person that can present to an audience, but they do. And the other thing, yeah, just partner with someone who's happy to be the front person or do strategies like your LinkedIn outreach or things that are more text-based. I know a super introvert who sells a lot of stuff via email all via email, not even telephone, no face to camera, just emails. They're just really good at it. Oh, here we go. If you lost everything and had to start over again, what would you do to make your first million in annual revenue? Rapid answer, Will. A very silly answer. Find a service I can sell for a million dollars in profit and go and sell that to one customer. A slightly longer answer, but still rapid fire. I would look at what my service or product is. How can I spin something up really quickly that's high ticket? How many do I need to sell to hit a million dollars in revenue or profit and figure out a way to sell that one service or one product to a bunch of people? Yep. I'd do something something around being a middleman. I'd find someone with a great product or service and then I'd find someone who's got the audience and I'd try and make that work and get paid at both ends. That's kind of a Bob Serling technique. Mm. And I did a lot of middlemanning in the beginning. I had affiliates selling my SEO stuff that was supplied by a contractor in India in the very, very beginning of that service. And then I went and integrated and brought in my own team in the Philippines. So you can change the model. But also, it's probably wrong question, wrong goal. Mm. It's not a realistic thing to do. You'd have to do things to make that million in the first year that you wouldn't do if you had a longer-term approach to it, more than likely. You know, I, um, I know it's a rapid question, but I might just say one more thing to that. And yeah. that question, as you said, is not a really valid question because if I had to start over, I've got the confidence. I've got you know, the marketing skills I've learned over a decade. You've got network. You've got assets. It's not a great question. Yeah. Pros and cons of running a remote-based business versus working in an office. This is a great question <laughs> for you, Will, because you've been doing both of this back and forth all year long. He struggled with the freedom of being remote, but misses the speed and efficiency and camaraderie of working together in person. Curious on thoughts of a hybrid where there's a core team, but still heavy into remote work for the majority. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a good one. Just because I struggled with this, we've been 100% virtual for about four months now, I think, James. Last time I had a conversation with you four months ago, I thought it was faster and more efficient having team next to me. Ended up, I was just giving them crap tasks to do. They were doing crap tasks really quickly. It wasn't effective. I don't care about efficiency anymore. I care about effectiveness. I'd rather not get an answer for three or four hours, but when I get the answer, that's the answer I need rather than trying to chase more things. I'm 100% behind this virtual model. We've been 100% virtual since uh, late November, early December last year, and we've been growing really, really rapidly too. So I'm 100% believer in make a virtual work because it's so much better for your lifestyle. Yeah, I think it just comes down to personal choice. Mm. I haven't had an office since 2008. I do meet my team in the Philippines normally like three or four times a year. We get face-to-face. We talk about stuff. Yes, you can do stuff quickly, but I don't want to go in an office. It's as simple as that. I'm happy at home. You know, I surf every day. It's just I don't want to do the travel, the commute. I don't want to be in a place with other people. I don't want to work that much, actually, if I'm being totally open. (laughs) So there you go. Deborah asks, she says she digs a good grill. Lucky because we're grilling hard today. (laughs) Hashtag grill will. Leave us your feedback on Twitter. Tag will, tag me. 
question is, what are useful methods for identifying what the problem is if the product, which is an online course, is not converting? Could it be the offer, the sales copy, the design, the traffic, or any combination of these? How do you know what to fix? I work backwards. What are my lead to sales conversion rates like? Are they good? Is it above 25%? It is awesome. That's okay. Let's look at the step before that. Are my opt-ins turning into phone calls? Is it good? Yes, no. Let's fix that process. I would work backwards at each step of the way and look at where is it falling apart? Is it the sales? Is it the opt-ins? Is it getting the opt-ins through? Is it the ads? Are they too expensive? Not getting results? I would work backwards and that'll tell you exactly what part you need to fix. Love it. I will say this. Getting an offer that converts is the only thing you need when you're starting out. And it's also, I think, probably the hardest thing to get. (laughs) Once you get it, everything goes from there. Can someone like Will look at what you've got and tell you what's likely to be broken? More than likely, that's where he's going to be able to help you a lot. And until and unless you fix the offer, no point doing much else. Mm. Question from Marie. Loved the episode we did with Trevor, Toe Cracker. Made her think about going back to more traditional marketing for her e-com store. She makes these awesome country clothing for horse lovers, just for context. Question would be in regards to e-commerce. Facebook's making it difficult for targeting small audiences and looking at ways to re-engage past customers and win back and unopened emails, etc. Thinking of doing a postcard campaign. Any thoughts, tips, or other suggestions? Love it. Rapid fire. Love it. Love mixing it old school in. Love it too. I do too. No brainer. My mate Austin Brauner is an amazing e-commerce coach. He teaches this. I've seen him do it with uh, coffee companies. I've told customers to do it. I told a client of mine who does scrapbooking, and it is going berserk. So, yes, send out a postcard campaign. Dean Jackson's right into it as well. Mm. I can't think of a reason why you wouldn't try it. Oh, that was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Next up is there's only two more. Martin's question, a day has many hours of opportunity, you know, YouTube, Netflix, just to click away. (laughs) What are your one to three most effective and efficient things I can add to my daily routine to hit my goals? Mm -hmm. He already has good activity, exercise, sleep routine, etc. Cool. So three things rapid fire. One, I would praise one person. Appreciate one person in your network for something they've done. Two, I would share one idea with a person in your network that could be helpful. Ask their permission to get the share or to share the idea with them. Three, I would serve your customers and talk to a customer a day. That's it. Love it. In my case, I would spend a moment just to reflect whether it's closing your eyes or whether you're just trancing around on your surfboard. Just think about life. Play a movie of what you want it to look like. Visioning, I'll call this visioning. It's it's a straightforward technique. And you'll find that your brain will start helping you solve that and getting you towards it. So especially I pay attention what things really piss me off. What don't I want to do? What don't I like? What don't I enjoy? And how can I edit my life to remove that sequence from the movie? And how can I improve it? Sub-question, what's your feelings and thoughts on using a little pocket goal card to look at and imagine your ideal vision? How do you set and achieve your own goals? Well, I think I just answered that. (laughs) However you do it, it's fine. Whether you put a whiteboard, vision board, whether you play the movie without those things, whether you go and visit a showroom to really lock in the experience, whatever works for you, I think it's pretty much proven from Maxwell Maltz right through. You get what you focus on. Mm. Okay, last one. Darren asks, I'd love to know how to track actual keyword level with which ads or clicks end up in Google as customers or clients. Looking for a new partner or provider or marketing team. Uh, He's going to contact you, Will. Cool. Awesome. So he's very interested to listen to the answer. And thanks for everything we do. 
Perfect. So looking forward to speaking to you. And uh, in terms of the answer, look, it kind of goes back to the very first question we had. So it's a good way of wrapping this up yep. in terms of attribution. Similar question, isn't it? Very similar question. So many different ways to measure attribution. Use best practice. Pass URL parameters through would be a good one. Keyword grouping would be a good one. You know, and just have a system be um, consistent with it. That'll give you the right answers. It takes a while to get right. Don't expect, you know, your reporting and, uh, and measuring attributions to happen overnight. Companies invest millions of dollars and they still don't get this kind of stuff right. So, you know, depends on the business, depends on how you're setting up your ads, but pass URL parameters through, report for your CRM and one source of truth, whatever that source is. Love it. And, you know, other things like coupons or dedicated landing pages, like old school ways that you can hard track things. This is episode 814. This is Grill Will. I've been grilling Will Wang from Growth Labs with a Z.com. He is a partner of mine in full disclosure because he's damn good at what he does. He's a marketing agency, kicks ass, gets results. He is not a low ticket entry thing. So if you're just starting out and you've got your first product, don't waste your or Will's time because he's really more interested in mature or serious businesses who have a budget and want to really swing from the fences. Now, Will, you promised a prize for the best question. From memory, it was um, firstly giving everyone who put in a question access to your new LinkedIn course. Whoever wins the prize is getting a personal consult with you. Is that right? Yep, that's right. And they're getting a super fast business hoodie from me sent to wherever they want. Any address that I can send it from Australia Post (laughs) in the mail. And a book, Work Less, Make More, copy of the book, signed by me. Who's the winner? Oh, man, this is such a hard question because uh, they're all really good questions. Can I defer? <laughs> defer this to you? <laughs> no, no, you can't. That's, this is a grill will, mate. You're on the hot plate. There's pressure. You have to think of all the questions you've answered. Which one do you think was a high impact one or which one forced you to work the hardest? Which one was maybe the most thoughtful one? I mean, there were some questions in there that were okay. And there were some in there that I thought were really like pretty good, but it's all on you, mate. Oh, I like the questions where it's more strategic thinking. So the ones where it's like, how can I be more effective? That was a really good question because it's a principle behind it. So maybe that was a really good question. What are the three things that we can do in our day to be more effective in what we do? Right. Okay. So that was from Martin. He asked, what are the three most effective? I really liked your answer to that too. You had a different answer to me on that. So Martin, congratulations. You're going to have a chat with Will and I'm going to send you out to add to your collection because I think he's been to almost every super fast business event. What I may have to do, Martin, if you've already got a super fast business hoodie, is I might find you a special edition silver circle hoodie. But you've got to look after that thing because they're extremely rare, especially since I'm not even selling access to silver circle anymore. Like these things are ultra limited. They are really, really good quality hoodies too. <laughs> they are. They're great hoodies. I often see my clients in them or partners wearing them on a call during winter. So that is episode 814. Will, this is one of the longest episodes we've done, but I think we've stayed true to the challenge. I've grilled you. You've produced. I loved your answers. We've added in a bit of spice and flavor here and there. If you love this episode, let us know. If you hate this episode, let us know. We can make whatever you want. Tell us what you want, and uh, we'll give it some consideration because Will is coming back. A talent this good is going to be wasted unless we have him back on Superfast Business in future episodes. We're going to add this to our Get Leads series as well. There's a whole back catalogue of Will Wang goodness waiting for you on superfastbusiness.com. And if you have the right kind of business or you think Will might be able to help you, head over to growthlabs.com. That's with a Z. 
check out Will. Will, drop your email address here. Just go direct. Will at... Yep. Will at growthlabswithaz.com. So we've also spun up a new consulting service now. So even if you don't want us to run your ads for you or build your funnels, happy to consult on your marketing as well. So reach out if you want some help with all that kind of stuff. Will at growthlabswithaz.com. There you go. Thanks for listening to superfastbusiness.com. Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com.